0: We're going to do Philippians 4 today. I'm going to try to finish the whole chapter. Don't laugh at me. And then um, next week, I'm kind of excited about it what we're going to do is next week we're going to take an a overview of the entire book of Philippians so we'll go through next week and we 'll hit a couple highlights there are so many powerful truths in the book of Philippians that that I want to go back and, and just remind us by way of review and reminder next week of some of the powerful truths in the um, book of of Philippians for next week so so let's begin in chapter four so we can get going kind of what is the first of chapter 4 say therefore so right away what do we have to do we have to see what it's there for which backs us up before we even get to introduction before we get to verse 1 it backs this up into chapter 3. Now, I like to remind us that that therefore that we see is also the application word. Now, we have um, some people that are very, very smart. They're very, very knowledgeable. They're the type of folks that have uh, 180 IQ. They're the type of folks that get a plus 1500 on their SAT. But some of these folks are not always the most practical, don't have the most common sense. It doesn't always equate knowledge to this other word that's called wisdom. And wisdom is the ability to apply to your life in a practical way the knowledge that God has given you. And what Paul does for us and that I highlight so often is Paul gives you the knowledge. He gives you the, the, the head knowledge and he gives you the information and the doctrine and the theology But Paul is very keen to also give us the wisdom of how we apply that to our lives. Because it doesn't do us no good. The Bible says that knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. And when it says knowledge puffs up, that's in a negative context, that, that it's not a good thing. And if all you do is get knowledge, 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 it will puff your mind up, but love edifies. And therefore, in the in the first ver, uh, verse here of chapter four is the application word of how to apply um, what Paul's told us. So, but it does require just a, a brief review of chapter three. Now, the the thing that's happening in chapter three, you could turn there, or I could just read it to you. But basically, remember in verse number two, Paul says, "Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers." Now. It's interesting that the Gentiles, um, I'm sorry, not the Gentiles, the Pharisees called the Gentiles dogs. And now Paul, kind of on a play on words, turns the phrase that the the Pharisees loved to call the Gentiles against themselves because some of these Pharisees, um, some of them who had come to Jesus were a group of folks known as Judaizers. They were religious folks that would come in behind Paul and they would pervert the gospel that Paul was preaching. They would try to add um, religion on top of relationship. And Paul calls them dogs and he says, beware of them. And then if you look down in um, verse number 18, Of chapter three, Paul says, for many walk of whom I have told you often and now tell you even weeping. Paul is crying that they are the. You guys with me? Verse 18 of chapter three, the what? The enemies of the cross. This kind of brings me a little bit of joy, almost vindication, because there's a term that I've I've used often. And I I often say it when I when I read this again a couple weeks ago or a week ago when I was going through it. And, you know, I've read Philippians plenty of times. But that phrase jumped out this time because I always say do you guys ever hear me say that religion is the biggest enemy of the gospel. I say that all the time that I'm not a religious person. I hate religion. And, and, and folks outside of the body of Christ, they don't seem to get this. They want to lump it together. And I have people tell me all the time, oh, you know, I don't go to church because I hate, I hate organized religion. And, and I try to um, nicely, tactfully explain, but they don't want to receive the fact that there's a huge difference between what we do here and organized religion. And there is a marked difference between relationship and religion. Last week, we talked about a group of people who are not going to get into heaven, and it has nothing to do with religion or standards or works why they didn't get into heaven. They come to God, and they have all kinds of works and all kinds of accomplishments, and they say, we prophesied in your name. We did good works in your name. We paid alms in your name. And Jesus is going to say to them, depart from me. I never what? Knew Knew you. The issue is relationship. The issue is knowing intimacy. And Jesus says, I never knew you. And Paul preaches a very simple grace. And there are the folks that are going to come behind this gospel. The gospel means good news. They're going to come behind this message that the word of God and that Jesus preached, that Paul preached, that I preach, that you're saved by grace alone and you can't add to it or take anything away from it. And they're going to accuse you of being simplistic, of having sloppy agape, of easy believism, and sure, anybody would would adhere to, would subscribe to something that costs you nothing, that's just a free gift. And the, of course that can't work. And, and what happens is it does kind of play into our our, our human nature. Our human nature feels like we want to do something to earn it. We should have to do something to earn it. The hardest thing to receive gracefully is grace. Lydia and I one time had a Uh, uh, somebody show up at our house with a brand new washer and dryer man that was tough it was tough to receive it it was tough to eat a little bit of humble pie where hearts were so broken and and the grace of just saying thank you it was hard it was hard to receive grace gracefully and and it's human nature you know they say that serial killers get caught because anybody they want to Because their conscience eventually just feels like it needs to be punished. And so it is human nature to subscribe and feel like that that we need to add some religion to our relationship. And Paul here, listen folks, don't miss this. Paul is crying. He's weeping. Water is touching the page that he's putting pen to as he's telling them to beware of these dogs. And then he says they are the enemies of the gospel. Those folks are enemies of the gospel. They may show up to your house. They may knock on your door. They may catch you on a corner and pass out pamphlets or however they do it. And believe me, they're all over in lots of different denominations and lots of different styles of faith. I'm not picking on one because anybody who wants to add anything to the simple gospel is is religion and its works and its works based. And it's and it's what Paul is warning them about in chapter three. And so we can receive grace gracefully. And they would say, how, how in the world? You can't tell folks that they don't have to do anything. You can't tell folks that it's simply believing in Jesus Christ. You cannot tell folks that, that all they have to do is receive a free gift of grace. Folks will take advantage of that. Folks will not, not honor the Lord if, they, if, if it's all free and they don't have to do anything for it. And that's what they say. How could you How dare you teach grace but it 's exactly the opposite is what they miss and, and, and it 's the idea that when you meet Jesus relationally and you receive that grace and that free gift and you feel and know the love of God, and you know there 's nothing you could have done to earn it there 's nothing that you could do to improve on it, and God just gave it to you because he loves you, then you respond to Jesus intimately and personally. And now you do good works because you want to. You give alms. You share your faith. You do all those things now in response to the grace of God that is in your life. And don't let those folks tell you anything differently. You know, the Bible says in multiple places, and I think you should know him. I think I should know him. A couple of my favorites in Acts 16, when Paul's with the Philippian jailer, you know the story. There's an earthquake. The chains fall off. The Philippian jailer's getting ready to kill himself. And Paul says, stop. We're all here. And the Philippian jailer falls on his face and he asks the most amazing question. He says, what must I do to be saved? Now, let me ask you, let me, let me clarify. When someone says, what must I do to be saved? Basically, what are we saying? What must I do to go to heaven, right? What must I do to not go to hell? Saved from what? Saved from hell and and into heaven. And he says, what must I do to be saved? And I love the simplicity of Paul's answer to the Philippian jailer. He said, believe on the Lord Jesus and you. I love this word in the Bible when God says it, because if God says it's going to happen, S-H-A-L-L, you shall be saved. Paul tells us in Romans, we studied it not that long ago in chapter 10 and verse number nine, trust and believe on the Lord Jesus. Confess with your mouth, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you S-H-A-L-L shall be saved. It is the simplicity of the gospel. And beware of the dogs that try to complicate it. Amen. Amen. That brings us to chapter four As Paul is in this heart. He's in this um, Um, feeling for his people. And he says, therefore my beloved and longed for brethren, my joy, my crown. So stand fast in the Lord. Beloved talk about sappy, sweet over the top greeting. How many times did he call the people beloved and all the things in one verse? I worked at Walmart for a while, um, out at the DC when I, Lydia and I first moved here. And, um, for about two years, um, before I came on staff at the church, before the church could afford me. And, um, and one of the things that, uh, that Walmart did was they, they have this policy. And, and, you know, Walmart has like, I don't know, a million or two million employees worldwide. And so it's one of the largest businesses in the world, companies in the world. And so they have this policy that, I mean, the whole building could fall down. Everything could just be terrible in the worst day and every half the people in the building die and the general manager will come in and he'll say, well, today wasn't completely a disaster. We had good stuff going on and this happened. He'll he'll tell you something positive about the situation. And it was almost ridiculous. It was almost like like when they and when they did have to tell you something bad, they they always started with something. And it was like a terrible day, like no production, half the machines broke. We crashed the walls like it was really bad day. And the manager comes in and eventually he'll tell you about the bad, but they're always going to start with some like positive spin on something. They're going to find something. It's it's a psychological policy of Walmart and of folks. Well, I think Paul here understood or they understand something that's almost biblical here. Where Paul is going to admonish, he's going to exhort, he's going to correct some behavior. But he, he finds something very positive and encouraging to say before that. And I think this is a skill, you guys. I think this is a very important skill in communicating with folks um, when you have to correct them or admonish them. Because the old adage is very, very true. People do not care how much you know until they know how much you care. And, and, and in Romans chapter 12, one of the gifts of the Holy Spirit is admonition. Now we, And Paul is going to give an admonition here, but he exercises the way that an admonition should be done. So for a lesson for you and I in admonishing folks is, is what Paul does here. Now, the thing about admonition is it's corrective. It's instructive. It's, it's, there's a sin in your life, and this sin is going to destroy you. This sin is going to hurt your family. This sin is wrong. This sin is, is affecting the church. You're aching, and there's sin in the camp, and you, you have stolen goods hidden under your tent type of thing. And so when someone has to come to you and come to me and give us a word of admonition that we don't want to hear, that's hard to receive, if somebody comes and just starts telling you how bad you are and how, how your sin is ugly and there's a problem, you might respond, well, yeah, my sin's ugly, but your sin's uglier. What about you? What about you and your little blah, blah, blah? You know, like, immediately we're going to go on the defense and start attacking them regardless of our own sin. But the gift of admonition, again, it comes... With love, if if you know that somebody loves you, if you really know somebody has your best interests at hand, then it's easier to receive those things, right? When you really know somebody loves you, maybe your mom, maybe your dad, when they have to tell you something you don't want to hear, you can receive it because you know. Husbands, that's what your wife wants, FYI. She wants to know. That you absolutely love her and have her best interests at hand. And if she, you can assure her of your absolute love, and, and believe me, that just, I'm not gonna get into marriage today. I definitely don't have time to do that on this sermon, but but you know, it doesn't mean you tell her I love you when you asked her to marry you, you know, and she knows I love her. I told her in nineteen seventy-six. You know how it goes, right? You you tell her you love her at 8 a.m. And you text her at 10 a.m. And, you know, you bring her flowers at noon that say I love you. And you, you go back, you take her out to dinner, and you tell her how much you love her all through dinner. And then you get ready to crawl in bed. And she looks at you and she goes, honey, do you love me? You know, you got to keep telling them, keep telling them. But she needs to know that. And once she knows that, then, then the rest of um, the stuff we have to talk about and deal with, then it works. So, um, we had a, a woman at Joshua Springs, and I talk about her often. She's one of my uh, idols in the faith, and um, somebody who, who's who's been very instrumental in mentoring me in the faith. Her name was Sherry Geisinger, and she was the um, uh, she was the financial secretary for Pastor Gerald. She worked for she was actually at Joshua Springs before Lydia's dad got there. She'd been there for over thirty years, and. Um, every, everybody that came walking out of Sherry's office, she had the biggest office to her office was bigger than dad's office. She was had, her office was bigger than the senior pastor's office. She had some clout. She signed everybody's paycheck. So everybody was nice to her. And, but, but everybody who came out of her office was crying when they came out. I used to tease her when, when uh, I was doing custodian duties and the, the shipments of tissues would come in, like in cases, I'd bring the whole case in her office. You're going to need those. Cause everybody that comes out of this office comes out crying. I don't know what you do to them, but. They, they're crying when they come out. So here's some tissue Or I'd walk in her office. And if I had to sit down, I'd always be carrying some tissue with me because I was going to cry. But I would sit down. And, and it wouldn't be long before she would have this gift of admonition, holy gift of the Holy Spirit. And I don't know how she crafted it. I don't think she did. I think it just came natural in the gifting of the Holy Spirit. But what she did was when I sat down and I started to talk to her within moments, I, I, just, I just felt so loved by her. I just knew she loved me. I just knew she genuinely cared about my situation. And the way that she would ask a question, she just asked the right question. It would just touch her heart. She just like she was listening to you and she just had a gift. And that's a gift. That's a gift, that's a gift. And if you have that gift, I want to hire you because that, that's that's a gift of of God given gift to change and touch lives. And I want that gift. And I wanted to learn from her. And we had another gentleman at the church, had a very similar gift. And you know, but you'd sit down and then she would talk to you and ask you some questions. You'd tell her what was going on. You tell her what your pain was or what you what your trouble was. And you know, and then she could tell you anything. You're an idiot. Look, you you schmuck, you did this and that, and you're like, yeah, I know, I know, I did that. You're right, you know. And no defense, no, just just because she spoke love to your heart, and that's the gift of admonition. So I know some some folks that really would love. They're like, I want the gift of admonition. I got a few things I want to tell people, you know. I want to give people a piece of my mind. I'm telling you, you might not want to give them a piece of your mind. You don't got that much to go around. You might want to you might want to keep what you got. But, you know, that, that's not the way the gift works. And so here, uh, in chapter 4, Paul's going to admonish these two women. And he does it within the bounds of, of love. And so that's why you have this real kind of floaty, lofty verse 1 of love, love, love. And then in verse 2, he's now going to deal with the issue. I implore Yodia and I implore Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Hey, guys, real quick, we're going to get to it. But I, if you guys underline, highlight in your Bible... One of the things that that I talk about as we teach the scriptures is repetition and the Holy Spirit teaches in the chapters through repetition. And there's something that Paul mentions. I didn't count them. One of the other pastors said, I'll just quote it 22 times in Philippians alone. There's four of them right here in chapter four, but it's an important concept. I touched on it last week, but look at verse one and, and, and verse one says, so stand fast. Three, three words. In the Lord, underline it, highlight. Look at verse 2. What are the last three words of verse 2? In the Lord. Go to verse 4, skip, rejoice, three words. What? Okay, go to verse 4, skip, rejoice, and read the next three words out loud, everybody. In the Lord. Lord. Okay, go to verse 10, and right after it says rejoice, read the next three words. In the Lord. Lord. So so there we have 1, 2, 3, 4, right here in chapter 4. So, listen, th- this is going to um, sandwich the message today. It's going to sandwich the what Paul is teaching you and me about all these things that he's admonishing, that he is correcting, that he's loving, that he's fixing, that he's encouraging. It has to be done, everybody say it with me, in the Lord, okay? So, it's in the Lord, in the Lord, okay? And we'll, we'll unpack that a little bit as we go on. So, again, in verse tw- in verse 2, I implore Eodia and Sintiki to be of the same mind in the Lord. Now, apparently, um, these two women, actually, we don't know for sure the sex of these two individuals. Um, it's always been um, taught, and I think, believed down through through church history that these are two women, that these are two female names. Some of suggested that this was a man and a wife. Can you imagine if that was you and your and your spouse, a man and a wife, and... Um, Paul calls you out by name, it would go down something like this. Like, Paul starts this church in Philippi. He leaves. The church is growing. Everything's doing well. And and, and then you get this message that the Apostle Paul is writing a letter of love and encouragement instruction. And and the pastor is going to read it to the entire congregation next Sunday. And the church is packed out and everybody shows up and, you know, everybody's just so excited at every word of the letter is as they read this letter that Paul wrote to the Philippians. And he comes to this part and he's like, and I implore Iodia and I implore Syntyche to be of these, these two people like (laughs) sinking in their chairs as their names are read publicly. Now, Paul calls them out. Paul didn't have a problem doing that and calling folks out publicly. Sometimes, as a shepherd, it's necessary to call folks out publicly. Now, I'm just going to try to briefly give you my two cents on verse number two because there's a lot um, out there. You know, I've heard sermons of, of people really trying to make aliens and, and criminals of these two. We're just going to call them two women because traditionally that's the popular opinion is that Eodia is that and Sintiki, however you pronounce their names, are two women that were having a fight in the church. That's, that's the majority of, of the scholar's view. But um, so some people try to make them out to be really terrible. Like they were divisive. They were attacking the church. You know, this one pastor was almost like, oh, these two women, how dare they try to destroy the work of God in Philippi. And, you know, like just trying to put a guilt trip on people. And, um, you know, I I don't really see it. I, I don't see it there. Now, now, first reason why I don't see it, I see it as, and I don't want to excuse it, but I, I see it as kind of a lesser problem Paul was dealing with, maybe a minor issue that that needed to be addressed and, and that Paul addressed it. Now, first of all, um, the Bible tells us, and Paul's already said, that if you have people in the church causing division, that, that you excommunicate them, that you, you have nothing to do with them. You, 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 you don't Matthew 18 them. And by the way, Matthew 18 is a way that we deal with conflict in the church. It's a way that Jesus taught in Matthew 18. We need to be familiar with it as Christians. If you have a problem with a brother or a sister, Jesus said, first you go to that brother and you confront them and you talk about the issue and see if you can resolve it. If you do, between the two of you, you've gained a brother. If you don't get resolved in the issue, then you go get a friend and a witness and the two of you go back and have this conversation again and try to work it out now with a a, a, a non-biased party. That's 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 part two of Matthew 18. Then the third part, if you don't get resolved, then you get the leadership of the church, the leadership of, you know, whatever the, the hierarchy is of the situation. And you get them and the witness and you go back the third time and try to reconcile or try to handle the situation. That's Matthew 18. As a pastor, I've dealt with certain situations and I've had people come up to me afterwards or later and be offended and, and, and say, well, why didn't you Matthew 18? Why didn't you, you know, you didn't handle that, right? You didn't handle that biblical. And then I'll take them to the place where in this particular situation, Matthew 18 does not apply. And I don't have to Matthew 18 them because they're divisive. And Paul says for a divisive person, withdraw them from a divisive person, have nothing to do with them from f- withdraw yourself, remove from yourself a divisive person. So, and the, and the Bible says God hates those that cause division in the body of Christ. So, so these are not divisive issues. If they were divisive, Paul would have dealt with it. They're not doctrinal issues because Paul had no problem dealing with doctrinal issues. He called Peter out publicly for hypocrisy. So if they were fighting over some doctrine, Paul would have just told them what it was, but he doesn't say that. And then he says, I implore, which means he didn't command them to, you know, which he had right to do as the apostle. And so implore is like a very strong encouragement. I encourage you, I implore you to be of the same mind. Turn with me real quick in um, chapter two and verse two. Um, and Paul is telling us in the same vein of Philippians 2.2, 2, he says, fulfill my joy, being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and of one mind. And so listen, Christians, God, God's will for us, you guys, is that we have one accord, that we're like-minded people, that we have, we get along. And that's, that's the solution he gives these ladies. Now, he wants them to do it in the Lord. Don't, don't forget the emphasis of what I've already talked about is that the solution is in the Lord. But he just says, hey, get along. Be of the same mind. Figure it out. Paul's already told us to the Philippians that, that we're supposed to be like-minded. That's wisdom for you, for me. You know, you, you gather with people. Let's say you have friends outside of, you know, of here, and they're, you know, maybe they're of another denomination, and they're, they're not like-minded. And, you know, again, not that we don't have and can't have any contact or fellowship, but, but the goal would be for us to surround ourselves with like-minded people. And that's why we talk about, you know, Calvary's our tribe. It's not the right one, the only one. It's just our tribe of like-minded people. And so, um, you know, and just to clarify, and then we'll move on. We're not talking about uniformity. That's, that's a different idea. Uniformity is where, you know, we all have to have the same opinion, and we all have to agree on everything, and this is the right way and the only way. And that, that's not the issue of being like-minded, right? We can disagree. You know, I often say that you guys have... Every right to disagree, to disagree with my opinions and have a different opinion. And if you have a different opinion, you have the right to be wrong in your opinion. And you know if it's different than mine. But we we can disagree, and that's okay. That's that's different than and still be like-minded in love and in in unity and in those things. And so that's what Paul tells these ladies. And then in verse. Um, three he says and I urge you true companion now that's an individual in the Philippian church we don't know who that is as well Um, some people I guess because the Philippian jailer would be easy to pin to that one and we know that he was in the church say oh he was talking to the Philippian jailer and he was Paul's true companion that, that that Paul encouraged to get involved in this situation and help these women who labor with me in the gospel with Clement and with the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life so you know Another point here, you guys, ladies, for you especially, it was very cool to see that that Paul had in his call of God and his ministry and, and the way God used them. Lots of women that served with him in ministry in different capacities. Okay, and so you know, only in in Christianity and Jesus has has the the place of women been elevated to the rightful place. And it's in Jesus. It's where it belongs. And Jesus has, has placed us on, a, on an even level. And in, in, in Christ, those things are right. You know. And, and, and what's the evidence of that? You, you look at the, the place of women in societies where the gospel of Jesus Christ has not penetrated. I think I shared this a couple of weeks ago. And I've got to be careful because it's not funny, but I want to laugh. Um, big news out of Saudi Arabia a couple months ago. Women could now get driver's licenses in 2017 in Saudi Arabia. How do how women feel good, right? Hey, you guys get to drive cars now. But that's not all part of the law. Women in Saudi Arabia are now allowed to get driver's licenses if their husbands sign off and agree on it, (laughs) give them permission. Then they can. So so and that's just one example. You know you know who carries the water in Africa. (laughs) i'm gonna stop this is not part of what i'm talking about i'm trying to bless the women and now i'm talking about women in africa carrying water on their head true story lydia's dad um we have an orphanage in malawi as you guys know we support it and he was there one time and the women were carrying water and just like on tv or whatever nat geo they really do have these big things on their head and they're walking with the buckets of water back the thing and there were some teenage boys there in the area and dad says to a couple why don't you guys go help what are you doing you 're capable young, strong man, go help her she 's carrying water and the boys laughed like they thought that was so funny, like the whole concept of car- them carrying water was so unheard of like there 's no way they were going to touch that water, and they thought he was kidding or what they, like they just, culturally they just couldn 't even fathom the idea that they would go help her carry that water so so the place of of women and, and we see it here where paul is is surrounded by oftentimes the whole church of Philippi started with a Bible or a prayer meeting down by the river. And when Paul got there, it was led by a woman named, beautiful name, Lydia, who was the seller of purple. And then Paul, and then Paul says, um, and I urge you, troop companions, and listen, my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life, if your name is in the book of life, you're going to go to heaven. If your name is not in the book of life, you're not going to go to heaven. And maybe another encouragement on Paul encouraging these women to get along is something that he gave us in the last chapter. Remember when we talked about being heavenly minded? And and Paul's like, you're going to be in eternity with this woman for the rest of your life. Maybe that's a motivator to get along now. Like, what do you think? My mansion's going to be over here and hers is going to be way over there. I'm just going to avoid her, you know, in heaven. and, And maybe that's the idea. But the cool thing is we have a mention here of the Lamb's Book of Life. Now, whenever we form a biblical doctrine, stay with me. Whenever we form a biblical doctrine, it has to have three components to be doctrine, dogmatic, be theology. It has to show up in the Old Testament. Jesus had to have taught on it or touched on it in the Gospels. And then the, and then the um, apostles would have commented or taught on it in the letters and the epistles that follow the Gospels. If you have all three, now you can form a doctrine. Okay? So, for example, baptism for the dead. When you see that, you only see that mentioned one place. Um, in one verse in the New Testament, you don't find it in the Old Testament. You don't find Jesus talking about it, and you don't find anywhere else where the, the epistles are teaching on it. So we can't make a doctrine out of that one verse. Okay, um, we have doctrine of salvation all the way through from Genesis to Revelation. All three three things um, there. The 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 Lamb's Book of Life is mentioned in the Old Testament. Jesus mentioned it. If you want to take some notes, I'm going to try to move on, you guys, because I got to. I want to try to finish the chapter. I was going to go and, and read some of them for you guys, but. Um, the Lamb's Book of Life, Jesus mentioned it in Luke chapter 10, verse 20. I'll just tell you what happened. Jesus sent out the 70, and they came back, and they were so excited. You remember the missionary journey, and they're like, Jesus, people, uh, the, they, the, the blind see, and the, the lame walk, and we prayed for people, and they were healed. And the demons, they obeyed us when we cast them out, and they were so pumped. And people got saved, and people received the gospel. And Jesus said... Rather than rejoice in those things, rejoice that your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. And then in Revelation, where, where the, it gets to the, down to the nitty-gritty, is, um, in chapter 3, in verse 5, it says, He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my father and his angels. And then in Revelation twice, once in 20 and once in 21, at the end of the book, the, the, the idea of the book of life is mentioned biblically. So now we have, we have it in the Psalms. We have it in Isaiah. We have it in the Gospels. We have it in Philippians. We have it in Revelation. So is anybody convinced? Do you need more convincing that the book of life is, is biblical? Yay! Yeah, is that good? So it says in verse 15 of Revelation 20, and anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. And then he says again, speaking of heaven, chapter 21 is all about heaven. And at the last verse of of chapter 21 in God's favorite number in verse 27, he says, but there shall by no means enter in enter it anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie. But only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. And so the book will be opened. And if your name is not written in the Lamb's book of life, you will not get into heaven. It's the bottom line. It tells us in Revelation 13, and another mention that I didn't read, is that is that God from the foundation of the world knew whose names would go into the Lamb's book of life. I'm going to pause right now. Don't put your Bibles away. We're not done. But... Um, I want to give us an opportunity. I want to make sure that everybody in here knows that they know that they know their name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And if you're not sure today, if you're, um, you know, want to make sure, I'm going to pray. I'm going to ask us as a church, let's close our eyes and bow our heads and give you an opportunity to make sure you know that your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. I want you to pray aloud with me. Dear Lord Jesus, please come into my heart. Be my Lord and Savior. I believe that Jesus died on a cross and rose again the third day. And I confess with my mouth and I believe in my heart on the Lord Jesus. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. I want my name to be written in the Lamb's book of life. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, the other blessing of the gospel, the good news... Is that you can know, you know, you know that you're saved. There is within Christ, you guys, within biblical Christianity, there is what we call an assurance of salvation. It's a sure thing. There's no doubt. You're saved. If you've accepted Jesus in your heart and your Lord, as, as your Lord and Savior, you're born again and you're walking with Jesus. That's something that religion can't offer. That's something that works-based doctrine can't offer because you don't know how much work you have to do in order to get there. And so... Now that we know our names are in the Lamb's Book of Life, it says in verse, three, or verse 4, Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. Will you guys do an exercise with me, please? I want us to memorize right now as a church um, Philippians 4, four. so let's just say it together a few times until we commit it to memory. So let's do it together on 3, 1, 2, 3. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. One more time. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say Rejoice. One more time. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. All right. Close your Bibles. Look at me. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. i you like watermelon, watermelon. (laughs) But now, you know it. Now you've committed it to memory. Now, again, the phrase that we highlighted is in the Lord. Okay, so as we rejoice, the the principle of rejoicing that, that Paul has stressed in the epistle of joy is that rejoicing is not in our circumstances. Our circumstances sometimes, frankly, they're hard. Frankly, they're difficult. They're, they're, they're not, uh, we're not expected or required to rejoice. If you go to the doctor today and the doctor gives you a terrible diagnosis and you have some disease or some condition that's going to cause trouble and pain in your life, you, you don't have to rejoice in the fact that you got that diagnosis. But, but as Paul already mentioned, the rejoicing is in the Lord. Here's something you can always rejoice in. You can rejoice in the fact that your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. You can rejoice in the fact that this this is the closest thing to hell you will ever experience. And for being the closest thing to hell, it has some pretty nice things going for it, right? Been to the beach, water skiing, you know, snow skiing, something beautiful, hunting. I mean, you know, on, on, on your best day, it's not that much of hell. But it is the closest thing to hell you'll ever experience in your life. And you can rejoice in that. And then Paul says after he gives. And listen, this, this, is, this in the Greek is like um, we talked about last week. It, it, there's certain imperatives in the Greek construct of the language that are commands. Some are suggestions. Some are. But this is a command here. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. The other one's command we, we unpacked last week was be being filled with the Holy Spirit. Okay, that, that, That's that same Greek. Uh prefaces that's that preposition that's that's command and so paul's commanding you here to rejoice in the lord always And again, I say rejoice. He doesn't say rejoice in the lord. Sometimes Rejoice in the lord when life is good Rejoice in the lord when you get the job rejoice in the lord You know don't rejoice in the lord when you lose the job don't rejoice in the lord when things aren't going your way This is this is a command that in all things and how can we do that? It's difficult, right? But let's look at verse 5, and it's not a coincidence they go together. Listen, he says, Let your gentleness be made known to all men the Lord is at hand. A couple principles there. So another, you know, uh, for in verse 5 in your margin, it says graciousness or forbearance. So let your gentleness, your graciousness, your forbearance be made known to all men. So God, listen, listen, listen. Listen, Linda. That's, that's what Paul said to those two ladies in the beginning. He said, listen, Linda. You guys got to get along in the Lord. And now here he's saying to us um, that, that rejoice in the Lord always. I give you rejoice and let your gentleness be made known to all men. One of the things that we've talked about, right, is that the biggest turnoff for people in your life and for, in my life as far as your witness goes of the gospel, of your relationship with Jesus, is if you have no joy, right? We talked about that. If your life is bitter all the time, if you're angry all the time, your life sucks all the time, you have defeat after defeat after defeat, you know, you go back and I read the last month of your Facebook page and it's just defeat after defeat after woe after woe after woe after, you know, crying, whining, blah, 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 blah. Why in the world would I want to go to the church you go to? <laughs> Why in the world would I want to serve the God that you serve? There's no victory, there's no joy. What's the purpose? I could be miserable without your church and keep my money, <laughs> you know, what? what, or whatever, you know. And, and it's like, the, and Paul, Paul puts those two together, rejoice in the Lord and then let it be made known to all people. And then again, we've already unpacked this, so I'm not going to go back, you know, because I think sometimes when I tell people, listen, give, give everybody the sunshine and give Jesus the rest. You know, or or let your joy be known and stop putting all that negative stuff out on your life and on your social media platforms and and start showing people victory and start showing people the joy of the Lord. Because Paul says here, that's what's contagious. That's what people need to see. And, And I know sometimes the reaction I get is people feel like, oh, what, you want me to be phony? You want me to be fake? No, I just want you to be a miserable Christian. It looks like you're sucking on lemons all the time. Go for it. I'll leave you alone. No, no, listen, I'm not I'm not trying to say we need to be fake and phony and and something that we're not. That's not the point. You can be real and genuine, but listen, you can have real and genuine joy that you can put out there. You don't have to be fake because your joy is in the fact that your name's written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Your joy is in the fact that you're, you're in Jesus and that there's always something good that you can point to. If not, go get a job at Walmart, they'll teach you how to do it. You, you can find something good in every situation. And, and put that out there. And Paul puts those two together. And then in verse 6, he says, here's a big one. And, and I'm looking at my clock, but we're going to finish today. Uh, he says, be anxious for nothing, but in all and everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Important that we're thankful, you guys, in our prayer and in our lives. Let your requests be made known to, to God. And then look, there's a miracle that happens in verse 7. Check it out. The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. You're in a terrible situation. There's no reason for you to have joy. Something is bad in your life and everybody around you knows the diagnosis. They know the situation you're in and you come out with a smile on your life. You don't know how you got that smile because it's a miracle of verse 7 that the peace of God that surpasses understanding guards your heart and mind and people see this joy and they go, wow, I want some of that. How in the world do you feel? How are you not crushed? I would be crushed if I was you. You know, last week I told you guys, and I believe it's true, you know, because I I think sometimes we preach that, oh, the best place in the world to be is right in the center of God's will. It's definitely the best place to be. But I told you guys last week, it's not, it's not the safest place to be. Look at the apostle Paul, who, who I would say lived his life in the absolute center of God's will. And his life was difficult. Sometimes your life is difficult and you're right where you're supposed to be in the center of God's will. And finding joy in those things, and finding joy in life, and letting people see that. Now, Paul says, be anxious for nothing. Another command. Be anxious for nothing. Do we deal with anxiety? I, I would almost say, if I look around the room, don't raise your hand. But, but every one of us, to some degree, deal with some kind of worry or anxiety or fear in our life. And then we get this, like, you know, it's almost like sometimes God hits you with this stuff that's unrealistic. And you, you read this stuff, and you go, really, God? Be anxious for nothing, but in all things, like, what do you got to do? Like Kuna Matata or don't worry, be happy. You know, I never trusted those sayings of the world. You know, I don't know. I never said a Kuna Matata because I was like, what does it really mean? Some like scheme saying I'm worshiping some like African God. I'm not going to say that. I don't know what it means. But the idea that, you know, it seems sometimes like, you know, just say no type of campaign that it's just not real practical in our lives. But yet, listen to the solution. Be anxious for nothing, but, in contrast, in everything. Now, look at these contrast words that we find right here. So, I have them highlighted. Verse 6, there's the word nothing. Um, in, or I'm sorry, in verse 4 is the word always, rejoice always. In the, word, in the verse 6 is nothing. In, verse, in the second part of 6 is everything. So these words contrast, always, nothing, everything. Be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let me ask you if we do that. I'm not trying to condemn anybody in here. I am trying to challenge you. The things that you worry about in your life, do you also pray for them with thanksgiving? Can you honestly say, I've been worried about this, and, 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 and worry has consumed me, and it's driven me to pray about it with thanksgiving? Probably not, right? Because the things that, we, listen, if you spend as much time praying as you do worrying, and as much energy praying as you do worrying, your life will change. You know, and Jesus kind of blanket statements this whole thing too in the Gospels, in, Ma- in, in Luke chapter 6, and he says, don't worry about anything. He says, by the way, worry does not accomplish anything. He says, if you worry, you can't grow one cubit to your height. So that means you can worry all you want. It ain't going to make you any taller, right? Ovi must not worry enough. Mike must, must worry too much. But Jesus said it ain't going to work. Worrying ain't going to make you any taller. It ain't going to make you a baller. It ain't going to make you a shot caller. He... <laughs> he uh, that's terrible. That's Cracker Jack, right? He says, he says Jesus said that if, um, if he clothes the birds and, and, and if they eat and if they, he said they neither toil, they neither spin, they neither sow, they neither, neither reap. And he said, yet they're arrayed in more glory than King Solomon was. And how much more is he going to take care of your life? If you ask him, if you trust him, Um, so don't worry. And it's what Jesus said. And then Paul here tells us the same thing. Be anxious for nothing, but in all things with prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known to God. So, so it's okay to pray for what's on your heart. You know, don't, don't ever, uh, don't ever subscribe to that lie. Like it's selfish to pray for yourself or it's selfish to ask God for things that you need in your life. I would encourage you to also listen. I would encourage you to also give thanks and prayer and adoration and other things included in your prayer life. But it's necessary. It's biblical for you to pray and ask God for the things you want in your life. Um, and then I always end all my prayer sessions with, nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. And I'll trust God regardless if he says yes, no, or later. But but having that heart. I, I have a note here, you guys, and, and I have a note to talk a little bit because sometimes with anxiety comes mental illness. But I think I'm going to pass it, if if you don't mind, and try to finish the rest of this chapter. But um, just to know that, that, actually, I can't even touch it because if we touch it, we got to unpack it. But um, verse 7 promises... Um, The the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Hey, can we try something about this idea that that we should pray instead of worry in verse 6? I saw this this week, and uh, it's not my idea. I stole it from another pastor, but I thought it was kind of cool. we, we've been, and it kind of fits where we are. Um, if anybody was here a couple Wednesday nights ago, we, we took a, a, a break from our normal um, Wednesday night study, and we did a teaching on prayer, on encouraging our church to pray. You know, they've always said that if you want a church that's going to grow and do things, find a way to get your church to pray, and then after you do that, find a way to keep your church praying. And it's really important that we as a people, that we as a church, that we pray. And I think prayer sometimes, and for me, I'm very guilty of this as well, even as a pastor, that prayer is more of an idea than a real practice. Like you really pray and really stop and on a daily basis get on your knees get alone as jesus said and actually pray so we've been giving you some tools to to do that there's there's a thing that's called praying through the tabernacle it's a it's an acronym it's a it's a process where you start on the outer courts and you work your way through the tabernacle until you get to the holy of holies and there's 12 um, steps that that you work through in prayer it's just a practical way to help you to pray it's not the right way the only way there's lots of those different acronyms there's one that i that i got when i was going through a personal discipleship when i first became a christian they taught me that i used for a lot of years was called acts and it was it was the book of acts a c t s and, and it started with acknowledge. And so there were some things under acknowledge. And as you pray, you acknowledge the Lord for who he is. And you get into prayer that way. And then the, and then the C stood for confession. And you confess your sins and ask God to forgive you. And you, you agree with him that this area of your life is sin. And then the, the T was thanksgiving. And you thank the Lord. And, and then the S was supplication. And that's where you ask for the things in your life that you're praying about. And for friends and family. And so... Um, Just finding something and those again are just ways to teach us how to maybe spend instead of like sit down and five minutes later you got nothing else to pray and you're like, oh, that's all I got, Lord. So, uh, you know, finding a way to spend some time and learn how to pray. But anyways, here's the exercise. Um, If you set an alarm to get up tomorrow morning, I want you to get your phone out right now. And I want you to set your alarm for tomorrow morning. Okay, so so if you don't just get out your phone and pretend, okay, and we'll think you got to get up early tomorrow And um, whatever time you get up in the morning, let's do 20 minutes. Can we do 20? I want you to back it up 20 minutes, and tomorrow morning, Monday morning, go to bed 20 minutes earlier if you have to, and, and tomorrow morning, you get up 20 minutes early, and you're going to spend that time praying tomorrow, okay? And, and we're going to start uh, um, letting our Sunday affect our Monday, and we're going to take uh, Philippians chapter 6, to be anxious for nothing, but in all things by prayer and supplication, let your request be made known to God, and put it in practice starting tomorrow morning. And maybe you'll continue that through the week. Maybe it's just one day a week. I don't know what your schedule is. And, you know, and, and it wouldn't ruin your schedule. It would bless your schedule. It would change your life miraculously if you got up 20 minutes early every day and spent that first 20 minutes in the Lord. So get the coffee ready the night before. You can pray and drink coffee all at the same time. God loves that. He even wrote a whole book about it, it's called Hebrews. And so he loves coffee. Just get your coffee and get get to work. And then um, in verse number 8, it says, Finally... And whenever Paul says, finally, usually he's got like three chapters left, but this one could be the last one. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report. If there is any virtue, if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. And so Paul is telling us as Christians, listen, to to meditate on, on the things on this list. So how many of you guys could take this verse and write it out real bold and put it on top of your TV? You're gonna hate that I told you that. Now every time you watch TV, you're gonna think of this verse. Meditate on things that are true, that are just, that are that are pure that are of lovely, that are of good report. But, but again, not to focus on negative things. Again, kind of the Walmart example of, of just finding the positive in things. And, and Paul tells us again here, it's not fruity. It's, it's biblical. It's, it's wise that in your life you find the positive. You find ways, you know, instead of worrying, instead of being anxious, meditate on good things that are happening. Do you remember um, John the Baptist? Now, listen. This is what Jesus said of John the Baptist. So Jesus paid him such an amazing compliment. He he said of all the prophets from, from Genesis to the time of Jesus, of all the mighty men who did great works for God. This is what Jesus said about John the Baptist. None was greater than John the Baptist. That's what Jesus said. And then he went on and said, but we're greater than John the Baptist. But up to that point, he said, nobody better than John the Baptist. John the Baptist was filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. When John the Baptist was six months old and his mother is still six months in the womb of Elizabeth, you remember the story of Mary walked in and she had just got pregnant with Jesus? And and John jumped in the belly of of Elizabeth because the Lord walked in, in Mary's belly? That's John the Baptist. John the Baptist baptized Jesus. John the Baptist gets thrown in prison and he's frustrated. And, and he's frustrated, and for this guy to be frustrated, and he sends word to Jesus, and he says, listen, are, are you the one? Are, are, you, are you the Messiah? Are you the guy? Are you going to get on with this thing and, and, and do what you said you were going to do and, and, and have victory and overthrow the Roman government? Or should we wait, or, or should we just, are we looking for another? And, the, and John was in prison, and the guy comes to Jesus, and he says, hey, I have a message from John the Baptist. And he, he wants to know, Jesus, are, are you the one, or should he be looking for another? And Jesus says, go and tell John the things that are happening. Go and tell John that the lame walk, that the deaf hear, that the blind see, that, that lives are changed. Those in captivity are set free. And he reminds John the Baptist of the positive things that are happening as John was looking at the negative. And I think that's the lesson that Paul's reminding us that fits into this rejoice always business. And, um, and then he says, we're going to talk about money. So I'm not going to end until I, I'm done talking about money. But. <laughs> So, we're, but we're almost done. Let's let's hit the money, and then we'll we'll call it a day. The things which you have learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do, and the peace. Excuse me. And the God of peace will be with you. I could spend a day on that one, the presence of God. So the promise of Paul in verse number 9 that brings that whole section to a close or to, to a to culmination is the, is the presence of God. And as I often preach, there's nothing as important, as big in your life than the very presence of God in your life. It's not the only thing. It's not the everything. It surpasses the only thing. It surpasses the everything. It's bigger than all those things. The most important, biggest issue of your life is God's presence with you. You want to have victory? You need Jesus with you in your life. You need that relational connection with Jesus and his presence with you. Good thing is, he said, he'll never leave you nor forsake you. And in verse 10, it says, but I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last your care for me has flourished again, though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased, and I know how to abound everywhere. And in all things, I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. A good lesson in life, you guys, is that is that we know how to abound. We know how to abase and that we can live. And then Paul says in verse 13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Now, um, Jesus told us in John chapter 15 that without me, you can do nothing. And you think, well, um, you know, there's a few things. I, nothing like, well, Lord, I, I can not do maybe the, the, nothing. You feel like, well, John 15 just beats you up with like, what do you mean you can do? I can do nothing? Nothing? Really, Lord? God, maybe? No, nothing. You can do nothing, John, Jesus tells us in John 15. Apart from me, you can do nothing. That kind of beats you up a little bit. Like you want to do little something. Well, listen, take John 15 that you can do nothing apart from Jesus and, and add that. To to Philippians chapter 4, where Paul says that I can do all things through Christ. And then you can feel good about yourself again. Then you can feel like there is something that you can contribute and be a part of and do. But it happens in the Lord and in Jesus Christ. Now, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Um, It's one of the most famous verses. I think it's an iconic verse, right? It's a bracelet verse. Um, Steph Curry, that's his theme verse. If you buy a pair of Steph Curry shoes, he had a, a deal with Nike. And Steph Curry wouldn't sign this deal with Nike because he wanted to put Philippians 4.13 on his basketball shoes. And as you guys know, Steph Curry's one of the, you know, the most popular Basque, NBA basketball players of our day. And, um, and and Nike wouldn't put the scripture on the shoe. So he signed with, who did he sign with, Adidas? Under Armour. Under Armour. He signed with Under Armour because they agreed to put Philippians 4.13 on his shoe and on all of his all of his gear and stuff. So he's now with a lesser contract with Under Armour so he could use this verse. I I knew a professional surfer um, who was like a pipeline master's classic, the World Series, a Super Bowl of Surfing, who had this um, as his mantra, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And I think sometimes we maybe over, maybe misapply this verse that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It's like I, I can win 27 NBA championships this year through Christ who strengthens me and I can make 500 threes a minute, you know, or I can score 10 touchdowns an hour. And, you know, that that's maybe not God's will, right? It's still in the context that we can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. But, you know, all things doesn't mean a, you rub a genie bottle and, you know, I can win the lottery through Christ who strengthens me. Jesus, just give me the right numbers, you know, it's this. That's not the concept or the idea, right? That, that it's within God's will and within God's plan for your life. And, and, and within God's will and within God's plan for your life, this is what God's word says to you. You can do all things. Amen? Don't put your Bible away. I haven't talked about money yet. Nevertheless, you have done well that you shared in my distress. Now you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me concerning and receiving, but you only. For even in Thessalonica, you sent aid once again for my necessity, not that I seek the gift, but the fruit that abounds to your account. Indeed, I have all and abound. I am full, having received from Epaphroditus the things sent from you, a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to the Lord. Um, in verse 18, you know, Paul says, I have all. And so, Paul, you know, sometimes you hear ministry say, and, and again, this is a red flag. If you hear a ministry say, if you don't give today, this ministry is going to go off the air. And if you don't give today, this church is going to close its doors. And, you know, that, that Paul never said that. Paul said, I have all things. And I'm secure. And he said, I know how to base. I know how to bound. And I'm blessed by what you do give. And, um, um, and Paul never preached that. You know, if somebody says this program's going to go off the air, if you don't give, well, good. Let it go off the air. Because it's probably, you know, charlatan anyways when, when you're giving and you have to give out of obligation. And listen, if it's God's program, he can sustain it. And he could put it on people's hearts to give, and Paul didn't do that. But in verse 17 is one I'm going to talk about for a minute, and then we'll wrap up. And again, you know, talking about money from the pulpit, it's never an easy thing. It's always, you know, because it, it kind of buys into the fear that you brought your friend, and your friend said, I'm not going to church. all they ever, I just want your money. The pastor just wants your money. The church just wants your money. I'm not going to the church. And then you bring them that Sunday, and that Sunday they're talking about money. You know, you're always afraid of that. But Here's, here's the way it rolls, and which is good. This is another blessing of teaching chapter by chapter, verse by verse. When the Bible talks about it, we talk about it, okay? And so here the Bible addresses it, and it's a good place to talk about it. And so Paul says, listen, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. And that's what you have to understand and believe about giving. It's, it's not about wh- what happens to your money after you give it. It's about the fruit that abounds to your account because you gave it. And so Paul said, I didn't seek the gift. I didn't need it. I can remember my mom, you know, one of the blessings in my life, one of the promises God gave me when I became a Christian was that my mom would get saved. And to this day, one of the biggest blessings for me of, uh, of serving the Lord is that he fulfilled that promise. And my mom did give her life to the Lord and she's walking with Jesus today. And I can remember talking to my mom about tithing, and my mom, um, l- l- very humble. She lives on a fixed income. She was a she was a checker at, at, at grocery store her entire life for forty years. Retired from the grocery store and lives on a fixed income. And I can remember telling her about tithing and giving when she started getting involved in a church. And and I said, it doesn't matter how much, mom. I know you're on a fixed income, but it's a matter of faith and trusting God. And you know God will bless you, and you can't outgive God. And it's not. And she said, well. well you know, what if, what if the pastor goes out and buys hookers with my money? <laughs> and I said, well, well, then that's the pastor's problem. But you, it doesn't affect what you gave. He's got to deal with God, and he's guilty, and he's got to deal with his sin. But, but it's to your account. It's to your credit. And, and, and it, you'll still give it. And, you know, and, and I, I don't know what she heard. or what she, she said, well, you know, but what about the pastor? He wants a this pastor, he has an air-conditioned doghouse. And I'm like, well, the pastor probably doesn't need an air-conditioned doghouse. So, but look, and it's, it's totally cool to vet um, and feel comfortable about how you give and where you give your money. And so if you're in a church and the pastor wears a pink velvet suit and drives up in a Cadillac and, you know, and he's got gold teeth or something and big chains and, you know, then, then find a different church. And if he's got an air-conditioned doghouse, find a place that you're comfortable that you can give and vet and find a place where you feel like your money is, is going to be going to God's glory and victory. Uh, and, and definitely, you know, find a place, switch churches, do something. But the idea of giving is is biblical, is that it's not for where you gave it, it's for your account. And Paul says it's to your credit. And I didn't need it, and I'm fine with it or without it, and, but, but it is to our credit. Now, the idea, and I just want to kind of wrap up with this. There's a lot we could talk about on giving and tithing. But um, the, the idea of, of tithing, some folks say that tithe, the word tithe means 10%. And some people say tithing is an Old Testament principle and and it's not taught in the New Testament. But that's that's the farthest thing from the truth. The idea of giving is, is Genesis to Revelation, of generosity. It's biblical all the way through. But you don't find the word tithe only one time in the New Testament. And Jesus said it. He was talking to the Pharisees and he said, of your mints and cummins and of your your things you tithe, which you should have done without neglecting the weightier matters of the law, which is love and mercy and grace and these other things. And that's really the only mention of tithe. And then when Paul talks about um, the New Testament giving, he says that each one should determine in his heart what he's to give and give hilariously. And that's Old and New Testament mentioned that, that the idea of tithe is don't give it begrudgingly. Paul says don't give it begrudgingly. If you give it because you have to, then, then, then God doesn't reward it anyway. So it doesn't matter how much or how little you give, if you don't give it with the right heart, God doesn't reward it or bless it. And that's why I never preach. I never, I never preach any kind of obligation giving. You know, and, and, and I'm, I'm kind of careful with the 10%. Lydia and I have always used the 10% as a guideline. We always try to give above and beyond 10% because we feel like 10% is our base. And then beyond just a tithe, the Bible talks about a love offering that is that is above that. And then a free will offering. And then one that, that gets really deep that's, that's, that's a, a, it's a cost where it really costs you. Like you're giving of your sustenance in that third level of offering. And so, you know, Lydia and I try to work our way between those and we start here and, and, that's always been our thing. But, but again, because the new Testament doesn't use the word and, you know, some people say, well, it, it's biblical and it is because some principles, like I talked about with the last one, when you see it in, in, the old Testament, Jesus talked about it, repeated again, the apostles. Now we have doctrine. And the idea of tithing and generosity is Bible wide. And some people say, um, and we will close with this. You guys, um, that, you know, well, I, I can't afford to give. If I give, then, you know, I can't pay my rent. Does God want me to, you know, not pay my rent and not pay the bills that I owe? Well, no, God, God wants you to be frugal with your thing. But the, the thing is you don't understand is there's a God principle that, that, that there's a God math. And when you, when you tithe to where it, ha, where it costs you something, it's going to work at the end of the month. And I don't know how it works, but it's God's math. And, and you, don't, you can't take God out of the equation when you give to God. And so many times when Lydia and I have had opportunity, we, we've given till it hurts because God has shown up. And, and, and people who, who give, who, who maybe the math doesn't work, somehow at the end of the month, they made it. Somehow at the end of the month, all the bills are paid. And it works. And I challenge people sometimes, take, take six months. Commit to six months of giving faithfully and see what happens and see if those bills aren't paid at the end of the month. And it's unto your account it's unto your credit, and 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 God will do it. And I also challenge people: seek God. What does God say about it in your life? Will you pray about it? Will you ask God what He wants you to give, what He wants you to do? I don't want you to come. I don't want it to come from me. I don't want it to come from obligation. But I also don't want you to forget the biblical principle that you can't outgive God. That that God also says it's robbing God if you're not trusting Him. And the matter is the matter of the heart. And that God wants you to put yourself in a position that he has to show up in your life in order for things to work, right? That's why God brought the children of Israel to the edge of the Red Sea. And he put the Egyptian army at their back that was going to murder them if something didn't happen miraculously. And that's the way that God wants us to live. Now, real quick, just a quick principle. We find the phrase in Deuteronomy. If you want, you can turn there or just read. I'm going to end with this. Um, In Deuteronomy chapter 15, we find this phrase repeated. And basically what's happening is God's giving the law. And in 14, he gives the law of tithing principles. And he says, you shall surely tithe all the increase of your grain in the field, produce by the year, that that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. One of the principles is that you have to trust the Lord, fear the Lord. And then in verse um, chapter 15, we find this principle. And basically in a nutshell... God is telling the people in the law of Moses to give to the poor and loan to the poor when they know they can't give it back. And then in the very next part, he says, um, I want you in the sixth year, in the year of Jubilee, to loan money. And that makes no sense financially. He already got through telling them no interest, give to the poor, and then give in the, in, in the sixth year. Why? Because in the seventh year was the year of Jubilee, and all the debts were erased. And so you think, man, I'm not going to loan this guy money in the sixth year because he's never going to pay me back. And financially, it wouldn't make any sense to give that guy money in the sixth year because you wouldn't, you would get all get erased. You'd lose money. How could you live that way? And God says, do it anyways. This principle makes no sense. Do it anyways. Be generous. Give to the poor. Loan. And then we find this phrase repeated through the law where it says, you shall surely give to him, and your heart should not be grieved when you give. So already, don't give begrudgingly. Don't have a heavy heart over it. Do it with the right heart. And then, listen, because for this thing, the Lord your God will bless you in all your works and in all which you put your hand. And so you add God's blessing back in. And what is what he told the people? He said, listen, just do it. I know it doesn't make sense financially. But if you'll trust in me, if you'll believe in me in this area... I will do God math, I will do supernatural, and it'll all work in the end because my blessing, you add my blessing into it, and, and all the math then works. Amen? Amen. All right, so get out your wallets. Let's have the ushers come forward. We're going to be receiving an offering. I'm just kidding. Let's stand and let's pray. Uh, no last song today, you guys, so we'll just let you guys go. Enjoy the rest of your day. Let's pray together. Father God, we come before you and we thank you, Lord Jesus, so much for the principles of Philippians chapter 4, Lord God. We thank you for um, the, the wisdom in um, um, admonishing people and telling people hard things that it has to be done in love. We thank you for the command to rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice, and again I say rejoice, and Lord, just this principle that, that, that rejoicing is not in a circumstance, that it's a decision we make to have a good attitude about life and knowing that our names are written in the Lamb's book of life. And Father, we thank you for um, the, the call that we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us, Lord God. We thank you, Jesus, for the, the promise and the commitment in Philippians 4 to be people who pray and let our requests and our supplication may be made known, God, known to God. We thank you, Jesus, for the promise that, that, that something supernatural in verse 7 will happen, that you will guard our hearts and minds supernaturally and a supernatural peace of God will come over us. And, Lord, we thank you for um, the call that of, of Paul and giving and having generosity and the, the praise of the Philippian church who, who, who supported Paul financially through his ministry. And, Lord, we thank you. And, uh, Lord, we pray that you'd speak to each one of our hearts in Jesus' name. Everyone said amen. amen. God bless you guys. Love you guys. Have a great week.